This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. These crimes are dangerous. What people have to remember is that uh, a lot of people out there who are trying to make a living have a right not to be terrified and their right, frankly, trumps an ex post facto sob story. Alonzo Thomas was the first minor tried as an adult under a Prop 21 in Kern County. Was Alonzo a juvenile super predator? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It surprised me why the prosecutor would file in adult court because the robbery was, was botched. And it was botched because uh, he's a 15-year-old youngster. America's prisons are overflowing, but many who are kept behind bars are just children. Thousands of youths are tried as adults in the U.S. every year, and some are given life sentences in the country's harshest jails. Many then find themselves becoming victims of sexual violence and suicide. Authorities in western Pennsylvania have charged 11-year-old Jordan Brown as an adult. The boys will have one trial together in adult court. The length of his sentence is also the length of his life. They're not old enough to drive, drink, or vote, but in America, kids as young as seven years old can be tried as adults. Our mission at Death by Incarceration is to shed light on a system that viciously targets marginalized people. The United States is quickly moving back to the crime and punishment model that made us the most incarcerated country in the world. We feel our message and show are more important than ever. This country has a human rights crisis. It's not about politics. It's about what our moral obligations are to our fellow citizens and how we treat other human beings. In the words of the great Bell Hooks, for me, Forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? During our first season, we realized that most of our conversations revolved around men, virtually ignoring the impact mass incarceration has on women and girls. Suave and I have interviewed over 20 women for our next series of episodes. We have some amazing stories to share and are proud of the work we've done to prepare for the next phase of our show. Over the past quarter century, there has been a profound change in the involvement of women within the criminal justice system. This is the result of more expansive law enforcement efforts, stiffer drug sentencing laws, and post-conviction barriers to re-entry that uniquely affect women. The female incarcerated population stands over seven times higher than it did in 1980. More than 60% of women in state prisons have a child under the age of 18. This week, we interviewed Judge Carrie Bloom of the Hamilton County Juvenile Court in Ohio. Since graduating from the University of Cincinnati College of Law, Judge Bloom has committed her legal career to public service. 
She's represented children and advocated for the fair administration of justice as a public defender in the Hamilton County Juvenile Division, as well as defended adults in municipal and common pleas courts and worked with children bound over from juvenile court. In between service as a county-level public defender, Judge Bloom worked at the Office of the Ohio Public Defender for several years as a legislative liaison and parole attorney, where she testified in the Ohio House of Representatives and Ohio Senate on behalf of juvenile justice issues. She also investigated, prepared, and represented clients in front of the Ohio Parole Board focusing on people seeking parole who had been transferred to adult court as teenagers. She participated in systemic policy work to increase access to courts, reconcile conflicting laws, collect and disperse criminal sentencing data, and rectify the lasting effects of the tough-on-crime legislation. Judge Bloom returned to the Hamilton County Public Defender's Office in 2017, and in early 2021, she was sworn in as a judge of the Hamilton County Juvenile Court. Your call to action this week is to call your local DA and see if they have a juvenile diversion program. This is the best way to keep kids from going to adult prison. If they do, please ask how you can support it. If they don't, simply ask why not. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Carrie Bloom. I am a juvenile court judge in Hamilton County, Ohio. It's Cincinnati, Ohio is the county or is the city in, in our county here. Um, the city takes up a little bit of the county, but we have a lot of other jurisdictions here. Um, we have a lot of kids and families that come through the juvenile court. I was elected in November of 2020. Prior to being a judge, I had what I consider to be one of the very best jobs in the entire world, and that is a public defender. I really think that job is just for special people and serves special people. You get to meet people on the very worst day of their life and provide them some genuine solace or commiserate with them if there's nothing to provide. And I really, I really loved that job. But uh, I got to, I got my start as an attorney at the public defender's office representing kids. So I worked in the juvenile division is what we call it here in Hamilton County. I got to represent kids on everything from truancy or not going to school all the way through our most serious felony in Ohio is murder and aggravated murder. So when you represent kids, you definitely run the gamut of charges that you experience. But one of the things that we have going on in Ohio, um, and we're getting better and better at it all the time, but at the time that I became an attorney, we were awful at it, which is our word is binding over kids or transferring kids to the adult division. And of course, that's how then they get sent to adult prison and that's how they get adult sentences. And so I was lucky enough when I was a law student to be able to be involved in litigation with the state of Ohio, with the state of Ohio's Department of Youth Services and um, some other folks um, working on the conditions that kids face in kids facilities, but also working on disparities in the youth that are bound over to the adult court and figuring out what is a better law, um, how do we better serve our actual state's interests with the laws that um, we have on the books. So a lot of advocates were involved for a really long time. I know you guys know systemic change takes um, forever and a day. And we ended up getting on the books what's called reverse bind over, which is a a whole thing to talk about um, and how that's used and how it's not used. But also another thing we have going on in Ohio right now, which is a success, we call it Senate Bill 256. It's our state's response to the Montgomery case. 
from a few years ago from the Supreme Court. And so what we say now is that we don't have juvenile lifers. We have people who are serving sentences in, we call it DRC, prisons DRC in Ohio, Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections. And they are afforded a parole hearing after they serve certain years, depending on a, a variety of factors, including what their offense or what their conviction was that sent them to prison. So that's a really exciting thing that's going on right now. Of course, that took a really, really long time. When I worked in the legislature as a lobbyist for the state public defender's office here, we started working on that. And that would have been in 2000, I think 2015 or 16. So that was before Montgomery. We were all trying to um, of course, get it done. And then the Supreme Court helped us out and gave us a boost with a little bit of great case law and good language. Of course, we're fighting still. Well, I'm not because I'm a judge now, but um, the advocates are fighting against the people who feel that giving juvenile lifers a parole hearing is invalidating the victim's experiences or invalidating the seriousness of the offense, which is illegal term that we use all the time to sort of explain why we do what we do. So that's what's happening in Ohio right now is having conversations around how do we message the goodness that this bill is and the goodness that the law is and and not that this isn't, you know, going soft on crime. Now that you just opened the door for the Montgomery case, I'm going to just go straight in. Okay. As you know, my name is Suave Gonzalez. I am a former juvenile lifer with 31 years serve in the state penitentiary. I'm gonna ask you the question straight up because as a judge, I think you, your perspective means a lot in this conversation. Do you feel as a judge, not as an advocate, that a person that come for resentencing in front of you, deserved after serving decades in prisons, deserved to be put on lifetime parole? Because if you read Montgomery, it said, you know, mandatory sentences. You know, so to put that same juvenile on lifetime parole, it's almost like a mandatory sentence, too. Mm-hmm. You know, do you feel that anyone that come under Montgomery in your courtroom deserve to be put on lifetime parole? So just to make sure I'm clear for the listeners is I wouldn't be resentencing anyone because I'm a juvenile court judge. So as much as I want those kids to come into my courtroom, they'll go in front of in Ohio. We call it common pleas judges. Um, however, to your point of lifetime, mandatory lifetime parole, what I think that does is invalidates the usefulness of parole or the intent of parole. And it also tells us that we don't have too much expectation for how rehabilitated a kid who's now a grown man um, or woman will be when they come out. So any mandatory sentence for children, I believe is an error. I believe that a state law that is a workaround for what the Supreme Court has told us is also an error. And I believe they know that. And it is a way to sort of speak to those people that I was saying earlier that are upset about the change in the law, that are upset that, you know, their family members or their families are affected by the change in the law. Of course, getting a notification that, you know, someone's having a parole hearing and the notification that you're allowed to go and that you can be heard and all those things several decades later is not, you know, a welcome thing. No one wants that and wants to receive that postcard in their mailbox or that email. And certainly neither do I I don't want them to receive that either. Um, But I also don't want the idea to be that because someone was younger 
when they were convicted. That means we should watch them longer. We know that we messed up when we started calling kids super predators. We know that was wrong. And we know that was the start or almost the whole start to the situation that we're in now. And so we're going back to that by saying mandatory parole for life um, without considering all of the factors that we consider about men your age when they are regular paroled. And, and we know there are even more mitigating factors to, to consider for someone. So as a judge, first, I don't want the, the law to tell me what I'm mandated to do. Um, but also, I want to be able to look at each person who, as they come out of prison and make that decision of what does this person need? What does my community need? What does their community need? How does our community all become one with the tools that we have? And one of those tools is parole. Many minors are impacted by adults. They're impacted and influenced to do things they wouldn't ordinarily do. And that needs to be taken into consideration. When you're 14, 15 years old, even if you commit a, a serious or violent felony, the potential is great for rehabilitation. I don't think that in most cases it's appropriate to process a 14-year-old or 15-year-old through the adult system unless it's merited. Sometimes it is, most of the time it's not. He did the crime and he had to be held accountable. But to be tried as an adult? You have this young man that, you, that didn't have one blemish on his record sent away as an adult, tried as an adult. Why? If I would have been more brave or a little bit more determined to, to not go into that store, maybe I could have did something different, you know? But I was just so scared. I thought I had no other choice. So can you explain, because um, just for my clarity, does juvenile and the system in Ohio get resentenced or they just go off for parole? So they are offered a parole hearing. Not a resentencing. That's right. I mean, and you know, I respect your position, Your Honor, but I, st I disagree with that because I think that sometimes these parole balls don't understand what it's like for a juvenile to be in an adult prison. So they might look at a misconduct and say, you know what, you are not ready for society, so we're gonna give you a hit, you know? and. That to me goes against the ruling that the United States Supreme Court ruled in, in the Mugabe case, because a lot of times these parole board members started in the DOC as regular DOC people work their way up to parole. You know, so they bias come in place. And I know that for a fact. I know that for a fact. So I, I think that everybody in Ohio, if we want to be fair, should be go should go back in front of the sitting judge or a judge and let the judge determine should they get resentenced, right? Because in Pennsylvania, that's what they doing. That's how I was able to get out. That's how a bunch of other guys was able to get out. We went in front of the judge and the judge said time served, which mm -hmm. automatically granted us a parole hearing. Mm -hmm. And I say that because in my 31 years in prison, I had a few write-ups. Mm -hmm. And you know what write-ups are. Sure. That if I go in front of the parole board with just my write-ups and not a resentencing here, I'll probably still be in prison. 
mm-hmm. because I went in as a as a seventeen year old kid that I had to defend myself from from you know from attacks people trying to sexually abuse me and you know people trying to rob my commissary these are things that a lot of parole members do not understand they're just viewing what's in front of you a record and if one parole member say well i don't believe you i don't think you're remorseful you in you get in the hit you know so for them to say in ohio we just giving you a parole hearing Right, it's like mm-hmm. going against the decision because how many people Ohio have released so far as a juvenile offender? I would say a couple, but the here's the I, I agree. When you with say you. roughly, roughly, what is a couple? I would say less than ten. Less than ten, and you know what? In, in, in my opinion, as a person that done thirty one years, the reason that Ohio has released only ten people is because they're looking at people's record. Now, fast forward to Jones versus Mississippi, where the Supreme Court reversed, tried to reverse the Miller and the Montgomery case, mm-hmm. which gave the state power now to say that person had two write-ups in the last 10 years, mm-hmm. right? So we deem him a threat to society. We could resentence him back to life and don't have to let him go. Right. And it's very unfair for Ohio to do that. Ohio's legislators should push for every juvenile lifer in their state to receive a resentencing hearing, not a parole hearing, because when you get resentenced, you automatically go up for parole. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe and maybe not. I agree with you that resentencing could be the most fair way, but I trust um, the group of advocates who made the decision of which way are we going to take this in Ohio? Are we going to push it back to the judges? which I believe they have tried to do. And here's the other problem with Ohio. Well, I don't want to limit it to just one other problem, but here is the other thing that we ran into is the advocates couldn't find who are the juvenile lifers. They couldn't find, we say JLWAP, I don't know if y'all say that, but we couldn't find when I worked at the state public defender's office, those people that we referred to as kids because they were kids when they went in, they weren't designated in any certain way on the prison role. So you have to go back and sort of look at people and their age when they went in and then look at the sentence they received and sort of manually pull out, you know, Suave, Kevin, Terry, those people, you know, pull their papers out. There wasn't a way to sort and find who these kids were, which is a complete other failure, right? That's a, that's another failure. And so the, the resentencing of those people is also, it's not that they said we're not going to do that or that we don't think that's a good idea. It's very, very slow. And the other thing about Ohio and not to be political in any way, but to say that there is definitely a, there's 88 counties and there are 88 different ways to do things. And in each county, there's at least one judge. In my county, there's more than 30 judges. And so the role that that kid might get when he goes, he or she goes back to their home county might not be the same benefit or the same chances that they would get if they go to the Ohio Parole Board. So when I, I, the other thing I didn't tell you and why I was so excited to meet um, both of you is that I got to do parole hearings for um, bound over kids. So any 
man, they're men in their 40s now, um, that were up for their full board or their parole hearing that had been bound over from Hamilton County. I wanted to keep the one from Cincinnati. Um, I got to represent them. And they are some of the best people uh, with some of the best experiences and who also became then advocates for this change. But what I'll say about that is the parole board, at least in Ohio, it has its it has its misgivings and political issues. But it's a set of people that's the same set of people every time. And so as attorneys who represent people in front of the board, you get to know them, you get to know what arguments that they, you know, find compelling or not. Um, you can advise your client in a more substantive way rather than resentencing, which I have heard in other places, resentencing is happening and um, not always being a true resentencing. Um, and so I know that 256, our bill, um, well, the state's bill is not perfect, um, but it definitely is a light at the end of the tunnel for the kids that we have here. And we have a lot of advocates across the state who are um, being sought out and lining up to have parole hearings because I think towards the end of this year and in the fall, there will be dozens of hearings all at once. But finding those people um, has also been a really big administrative but challenge. But Your Honor, how many juvenile life for this are in the state of Ohio currently? I okay. don't know. Pennsylvania don't know. has 500, have 500, and, 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 almost 550. They done. They okay. are done. We talk about a neighboring state. They are done resentencing juvenile lifers in Pennsylvania, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to believe that only ten people out of the whole state in Ohio are are are, are deemed fit to be released from the parole board. That's hard for me to believe, right? Well, I don't know that they've had, they haven't had their hearings. That's just my guess on how many have been successfully resentenced and released on a sentence that was shorter than their okay. LWAP. Um, because this, this bill just, just, just passed and was signed by our governor. And so my understanding from the advocates is that the hearings, the full board hearings are scheduled September, October, and November. Oh, okay. So it's, so, so it's not that they've had them and been denied. It's that, that they haven't. Well, had I, them. What, I think, okay, but let me say this, and then you got the mic, Cap. I think that advocates nationwide should pay more attention to what's going on, not only in Ohio, but in Michigan, because I believe that, I agree with you, Your Honor, that you come from the public defender's office and you have a different perspective. But I also know, right, that the Miller and Montgomery factor is not being applied appropriately in that state because if it has, we would see more people being released instead of being given the runaround that the state do. Oh, we got to wait for this bill to pass. We got to wait for parole. The United States Supreme Court said it is illegal. It is it to it is unconstitutional. But yet, we certain states like Ohio and Michigan are finding ways to delay these hearings and to keep these gentlemen and women in prison longer than they should. But hey, uh, but again, that's a different show. I'm just glad that you're sharing your perspective with us because I think that people need to hear this. 
people around the country think, oh, the the different states are are respecting what the United States Supreme Court ruled with juvenile. No, they're not. No, they're not. And to have Pennsylvania, right, which I think is like the most uh, hard state for juvenile, we had some of the most we have the most juvenile lifers other than Michigan in the state to have Pennsylvania take the lead in releasing them juvenile. It's like a smack in the face to Ohio and to Michigan. But go ahead, Kat. Well, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm wondering what that the new legislation does for current individuals that are going through trial that have been deemed adults that are still children. So what, what's the, what's the go forward plan for the state of Ohio? So like we talked about earlier, you know, the Supreme court in Montgomery said, no, no jail lot. This we're not doing it anymore. Now, of course we know that's been walked back recently. And so the way that the bill, the, the bill likely and hopefully won't apply to any kids who are going through the process of, of bind over and they're in the adult court because we are, because we don't have life without parole for a kid anymore. So we shouldn't get those sentences. So those, so that child shouldn't need that bill's mechanism to schedule their parole hearings. Now, that being said, I'm a judge and I make mistakes. I try not to make too many, but I make mistakes. And I know there are judges who don't agree with the law that you can't give a kid life without parole. And so those sentences could happen, but instead of being fixed or instead of that kid getting a parole hearing under the bill, what would happen is that sentence would get appealed by some of the appellate lawyers in our in our court and the Ohio Supreme Court, our district courts in the Ohio Supreme Court would have to fix that and say like, this is not a legal sentence. You shouldn't be doing right. that. Well, so it's one of the interesting things too. And, you know, we've talked to Josh Robner from the sentencing project as well, that the United States is still the only country that does have states that give juveniles life without parole. And in most other, well, by international law, it's, it's deemed illegal, you know, and it's just unbelievable to me that we are so behind on this. Talk a little bit about how, I mean, do, do when, when they do parole hearings, do they factor in any of the current brain science around when you're able to make adult decisions? Because somebody may look on paper like they're incorrigible because their sentence was given to them, you know, maybe 10 years ago. But the fact of the matter is they weren't even capable of making an adult decision when they when their when their offense occurred. So how does that kind of mm -hmm. work with the law in, in Ohio or does it? Is it factored at all? So, yes, and I just wanted to break in real quick. I sent a message to one of my friends. There's 13 jail lock people identified in Ohio right now in still locked up. Only 13. Um, only okay. 13. Well, 13, I mean, one. Well, but we're, we're talking about versus 13. 500 in Pennsylvania at one point. So. Exactly, exactly. And like we said, that sentencing scheme is for a different yep. show, but I would love to be a part of it. Um, but so since Montgomery, the courts, and advocates have been trained on how to listen and pre present and listen and use the factors of, I call them the factors of childhood mm -hmm. or mitigating factors. Right. So um, we know brain science. Um, and when we're in groups like this and we say brain science automatically, um, we all think, well, until you're 25, right. you know, your brain, your brain's still kind of 
not put together all the way. And so in my case, um, until I was 50. So just to be clear. Sure. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I'm getting married next month and he's 40 and I'm hopeful by the wedding, it all comes together. But, (laughs) but uh, yeah, so um, we know, you know, we know what that means. And um, we have, and and that's because we've dedicated ourselves to learning it. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I think the challenge is, is that when we send kids to adult court, adult court, doesn't you know those kids are are such a small percentage of the cases that they have coming through Mm -hmm. and so focusing on you know advocacy efforts and training those judges is really what we need to do better in ohio and we are allowed presenting the childhood factors of childhood or mitigation by way of brain science or presenting experts even for sentencing purposes is all allowed. You are you are completely allowed to do that and um, to ask the courts to take that into consideration. And in Ohio too, we have that here in the juvenile court. If you commit a felony and you're young enough or it's not a as serious of charge as some others, we can decide as judges, is this person child, are they better suited to stay here in juvenile court than they would be to go over into the adult court. So I would say about half of the bindovers that we have have that second step process where I get to hear from the attorney, I get to hear from um, a, you know, a court psychologist or psychiatrist, I get to hear from the uh, child's mother or father or other family members about who exactly that kid is and are they um, still a kid enough to stay here in juvenile court. And we call that an amenability hearing. That's the legal word that we use for figuring out exactly what you just said, Kevin, which is, you know, is this truly childhood that we're experiencing here? Right. And how do we make sure we apply that fairly to the kids that are in front of us? Well, and when we talked to Chase about Dean, he basically said that, you know, their goal in the district attorney's office in San Francisco is to always apply the, you know, kind of the, the, the best, that, you know, he had a term for it, actually. I think it was the um, using, applying uh, the the best outcome for the child is like a, is, is the application in, in which they decide on how to, how to go for sentencing. I'm wondering mm-hmm. though, if you're going to start seeing, or have you seen anybody, any of the district attorney's offices yet start to, to use the new case from, from uh, earlier this year, Jones versus Mississippi as, as mm-hmm. like, as, you know, to kind of go for these, harsher sentences again because you know according to jones all the judge has to do is consider the age of the of the child and and Mm -hmm. everything else is is pretty much like at their discretion and what does that even mean you know what does that mean to some of these kids in in states like mississippi you know who still definitely apply you know life without parole to children and took it to the supreme court so do you think you're going to see that in ohio because ohio has some conservative counties i mean you know, you guys are right next to Kentucky. You know, I mean, I, you know, we're in, like you said, we don't want to play politics. Conservatives are as apt to be uh, reformers as, as liberals at this point. You know, I'm not really sure what their motivations are most of the time, but you know, what, mm-hmm. how, how are we going to kind of as, as a group of advocates, you know, and taking off your judge hat for a second, fight this, this new ruling Jones versus Mississippi. If the district attorneys start using that as their example of case law. So a couple of things. First, in here in Hamilton County, I have not seen any change 
in the way sentencing requests are made or sentencing arguments are made Mm -hmm. from our prosecutors based on the Jones case. I don't know if if that's because of how we do our juvenile cases here. I don't know if we just haven't had one where that a a serious enough case where they would try to do that. I'm not sure why, but I have not seen any different sort of advocacy um, from the prosecutors regarding longer sentences or LWOP for kids based on the Jones case. Okay. Yeah. I'm not, I will. Yeah. I'm just, yeah, I'm just curious. Like what would be, what would be the argument if, if that does start to be the reference for case law going forward? Mm-hmm. I mean, the argument to me, um, and again, I am a judge now, not a public defender <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not giving any public defenders legal advice at this moment, but you know, as, as a judge, what I'm looking for, what I would be thinking about is, well, wait a minute. We had this before. We had this, you know, we've sort of come all the way around the progressive circle. And now we're back at the beginning mm-hmm. from the, you know, the 90s, where we're allowed to consider items or characteristics of childhood as aggravating and not mitigating. Right. And, and does that make any sense? And I think the way that it's presented to judges has to keep carrying the carrying the water that advocates started a long time ago of childhood is not bad. Mm-hmm. Childhood is different. And childhood is different for every kid. And some of those, some of the reasons why are um, within our control and some of the reasons why are not. But either way, the characteristics of childhood can't be something that aggravates an offense. We have, we've all accepted that. The Supreme Court has told us that more than just in Montgomery. They've told us that in lots of different mm-hmm. cases. And it's been said in, you know, not so many words in other cases as well. And so just because we have Jones, I don't think, I'm not worried. I'm not as worried as I thought I was gonna be. I'm not as worried about that because there has been so much effort in building up kids and and the characteristics of childhood and the mitigation that 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 comes with that and the advocacy groups are so strong and they won how many cases right in a row for you know a decade i mean i know they lost a lot too definitely been on the losing side for long long time but you know from 2000 until 2017 Mm -hmm. how far sentencing for kids came that i think jones is a case that is hard to get on board with right um and i think that it i i just don't see it making as negative of impact in ohio as the positive impact of montgomery i don't i don't think that they balance right well yeah i mean i i you know i I would certainly hope so (laughs) um right talk a little bit about too i mean and we're 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 getting kind of in the weeds here too i don't want i don't want this to be like a you know a legal discussion and have people kind (laughs) of Um, Get bored. I mean, Swami and I'll talk about this all day long because we will go both got very strong opinions about how this should go. But you know, the fact is that not everybody, you know, a lot of our listeners, yes, but we, you know, we're trying to appeal to a broader audience so people really understand. Okay, talk a little bit about some of the. Um, I know you've only been on the bench a short time, but maybe some of the things that you're gonna or, or are or going to try out in terms of like alternatives to sentencing in your mm-hmm. court, and maybe give us, you know, an anonymous. You don't have to obviously name names because you can't, but you know some success stories that you that you know of in the juvenile court system where people are kind of doing something different and they're they're 
they're turning their lives around because I think that actually yeah. speaks to the broader topic of how we treat children in the court system. Absolutely. And one of the things that I'm the most excited about as far as um, alternative sentencing is when we think about, um, to your point, Suave, when we think about probation and parole and what do those things actually mean? We know the reasons they were started. We know the, you know, the, the paths that they took and we still have them here in Ohio and we have them in the juvenile court. But I am lucky enough to have several community members when I took the bench several community members and organizations came here to the court and wanted to have meetings and wanted to talk about how they individually and with their organizations can help kids. And, and so what we've started doing is connecting families and children with, with the helpers, with the people who are in their communities, with the people who walk the street at night and, settle disputes with the people who, you know, feed everybody on Saturdays with um, the people who are there and existing and want to help. Um, because I think for a long time, courts have stayed so sterile mm -hmm. and stayed out of the community and stayed, you know, we're, we're just in our old, old building and we make the, or we, you know, decide who's broke the rules and we say what happens because of that. But becoming more of a community based and community driven court is to me, I think way more successful. So for instance, um, there's a gentleman here who anytime there's in the city limits, anytime there is a shooting or a fatality, no matter the day or time he goes and he takes a couple of guys with him and they talk to everyone who's there and they offer you know my words are are grief, grief awareness and grief counseling but um their words are different and they you know start the process in the community of talking about not necessarily talking about what happened as like in a witness sort of way but talking about how did it you know how did we get here um how can we help the people who live around here how can we help this person's mom or dad or children and sort of keeping everybody together rather than letting everybody scatter when there's when there's grief and he has come to my courtroom and picked up or or signed on to uh informally signed on to two of my cases and the mother of one of those children and, and so then i let him out kids that in Ohio right now or in Cincinnati right now, we have a significant number of children um, shooting other children in a disproportionate way than I have seen in previous summers. But, and so he came and he picked up this kid and he's a kid that, you know, everybody wants him to go to DYS because he had a gun and he has sort of just had this kid following him around and, you know, they're, they're buddies for, as far as I can see, they're how their relationship develops outside of here. I don't really care because I trust this community member. And so his mom's happy with him. He's coming home when he's supposed to come home. He's, you know, honest about where he's been. And to me, those are all successes, regardless of where it is that he's gone, if he's supposed to be there or not, the honesty is the success. Um, the coming home at night is a success. The trust between he and his mom and his sisters, that's the success. And so while I want that child to, you know, to be safe and healthy and productive, he is scratching the surface of the emotions and the, you know, sort of the emotional development that a lot of us were offered 
when we were very young. And so to me, that those are the successes. Um, having people be able to feel their feelings and say them out loud, or at least, at least feel them a little bit. If I, if I could develop a relationship between kids and their parents in a way that was lasting, I, I think I'd be a millionaire. I don't know, but I, I definitely um, be able to reduce some of the, you know, juvenile offenses that we have here in Cincinnati, because so many times kids are, I don't want to use the word preyed upon, but found by older people. And, you know, that's, that becomes their trust system. And whether you call that a community or a group or a, another G word, um, then, you know, that's, that's what they want. And that's what makes them feel good. And so this sort of alternative sentencing of involving community members and removing myself, right? Like I am the, I'm the court, I'm the white lady in a robe who's, never been to their house, who's never been to their school, who's, you know, not going to, honestly, I'd, I'd love to, but that doesn't make any sense. But so, you know, why, why would I know what's best for that kid at home? I might know, you know, what I have to do because of the law or what I'd like to do because of the law, but what's best for that kid, which is what you were saying, Kevin, the best interest, you know, sentencing and best interest going through the the courts with kids and families, we have to start trusting people who are, who actually know what those interests are and who, who have the skills to help people develop them. I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad you touch on that because most of the time you and I know that when they say you had the right to a jury trial, 12 members of your peers, right? The members are not for my peers. They don't understand the peer pressure that go on in my community. They, they never been there. They would never go there, but yet, they, the courts in certain states see see it as they, they are fit to judge what you should receive for whatever violation of the law you have committed. So I'm glad you touched on that. I'm glad that you trust your community representative to the point where you can say, I could release this kid to you and expect some success because not every mm-hmm. judge do that, at least not in Pennsylvania. I always believe that the best people to save these young kids ended up in the criminal justice system are the people that's been through it, the people that lived their experience, right? Um, but they don't. A lot of us do the community work. You know, I do community work in the community to the point where I think they know the whole Philadelphia. <laughs> and, and I'm not and I'm not kidding. You know, when I do food drives, I bring tractor trailers. Fool of fool. Mm. I don't ask the city for, for, for donation or none of that. All this is privately done. Right? I do it because I believe. I do it because I grew up in poverty. I do it because I know what it is to be hungry, right? Mm-hmm. And what it costs a child to do when that child is hungry and don't have nothing to eat or nothing to wear. Well, Kat and Darren, one program for justice-involved youth is called the Raise the Age Initiative. Now it's aimed at keeping young people out of adult court and prison. Now, Governor Phil Scott, however, wants to put a pause on that program. Raise the Age was passed in 2018 and is rooted in new studies showing young people's brains aren't finished developing until their mid-20s. There needs to be due consideration given on a case-by-case basis to determine whether that person really fully understood the consequences of his or her action. Right now, 18-year-olds, barring the Big 12 crimes, are tried in family court. 
Next July, the law calls for raising the age to 19. And in 2024, suspects 20 and under would automatically be considered juveniles, tried in family court, where proceedings are confidential and sentences do not include prison time. But the Scott administration wants to pump the brakes on raising the age to 19, citing concerns over public safety. You know, I know what it is to live in poverty. You know, I grew up mm -hmm. in a household with a single mother, six sisters, one brother, which, by the way, mm -hmm. is a cop today. <laughs> I got to say that. Uh, I can uh, verify I met him. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so I know what it is, you know, to be hungry. And I also know what it is to have somebody in the community say, you know what? I got you. I'm mm -hmm. going to teach you some ways that could save your life and help you stay out of prison. You know, and mm -hmm. if every judge across the border, not just in Ohio, will adapt that philosophy, I guarantee you we wouldn't see so many kids in prison. You know, because most that's a really good point. Most of the time, yeah, these kids that commit crimes, they're not committing crimes because they're bad kids. They're committing crimes because of the economics, because yeah. they want to fit in, the peer pressure. You know, and they get caught up in the system, then they end up in a system where the judge don't know nothing about your upbringing. They don't know your mitigating factor. They don't know if your mother or father is on crack or heroin or locked up. They don't know if you just got your little brother killed or shot. They don't know. All they know is that you were standing in front of them being accused on some charges, right? And, and, and you want to pay mm -hmm. the ultimate price. And they don't have no yeah. faith, and they don't have no faith in your rehabilitation. And we see that in a lot of states. So I'm glad that you are one of the few judges, I may say, that trust community members to say, you know what, this is a member of your community and I trust that you could save him or her from ending up in a deeper hole in the criminal justice system. So I thank you for that, Your Honor. Of course, of course. And I think another you know, thing that I want other judges to do if any other judges are listening um but also as you talk to more people is you know if you haven't been to a prison if you haven't been inside a prison cell or if you haven't gone through the search that it takes to get in to talk to a person inside a prison or inside a juvenile facility or you know inside some of the government housing um, development in your city if you haven't been in those and you haven't walked through those doors and heard them click behind you or, you know, had some of those other experiences, I would think it's really hard to understand or even picture in your mind what's happening in, to the people who are in front of you. So, um, you know, I, it's important to me that, you know, when I hear from kids that they visited their dads um, or their moms in prison or in jail, I know they've walked through the door and they've heard it locked behind them, right? And I've done that too, and I know what that feels like. And even though I know I get to walk back out in an hour or two hours or however long it is, psychologically that does something different. And I think that we all, as judges, what we have to do is we have to make sure we are as proximate or as close to the environment that our kids are coming from as we possibly can. Otherwise, I don't know how you, you know, like you said, you, you not every square, what a rectangle is a square, but a square is not a rectangle. Not everything fits through the same box or in the same box. And we have to make sure that we've experienced as many environments as exist in our jurisdictions as we can. Well, I, I think it's almost impossible to build empathy unless you're, you actually have walked through 
the experience of the people that you're, you know, that you're basically in charge of their future, you know? Mm-hmm. And so if, if a judge or a, or a district attorney has not visited or an attorney general has not visited a prison, I mean, I'd be shocked if an AG or a district attorney had not, but you know, there's judges that are elected straight, straight out of just being a private lawyer all the time. You know, and so I, I, I highly recommend walking the jurisdiction that you're in, because if you're seeing these these individuals, whether it's adults or children, knowing what they're going through on a day to day basis will 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 inform your decisions in a way that you just can't if you're protected from it. Um, one one of the things. So your your episode is going to be part of our season, two, which is all about women. Um, and as we know, um, the United States has a very interesting stat over the last 10 years, which is that the increase in women in prison is 700%. So what are we doing for our girls in juvenile court to keep them from heading to the state penitentiary or the federal penitentiary? Because you know what? They, they, need, they, need our, they need our support badly. They do. They do. And I would say that my guess and what I would stand on in the increase in women in penitentiaries and in jails and, and just charged with crimes in general is trafficking, criminal trafficking, drug trafficking, human trafficking, forced crime all fit into that trafficking classification and addiction. And we know that for whatever reason, girls' brains are different um, and men's brains are different. We act, you know, we, we are motivated by different things. And what we have to pay attention to with girls is what is it that is motivating them? So right now we have an increase in the number of girls who are participating or allegedly participating in offenses as like the seductress or as, you know, making the phone call to get somebody to come where they're robbed or shot or, or otherwise. Um, and why is that, right? Like we have to look at why is, a girl motivated by that, like the age-old story of you know love. I mean, can maybe? I can I can I add to that? Yeah. I mean, you probably can't say it because you are a judge on the bench, but I probably could say a lot of the time these young women, I say I'm not going to call them girl, young woman, right, are encouraged to do these stuff because of daddy issues. First of all, sometimes they don't have a daddy in the house, so they get some of these old jokers that come through run gain on them and use them to traffic drugs to make these phone calls to set people up right mm-hmm. or if you love me you would do this and they get to feel power you know like oh if i do this for such and such he's gonna love me forever he's gonna get me a gucci bag he's gonna get me a louis vuitton not knowing that that little love that you got going on is gonna get you decades in prison you know, and mm-hmm. a lot of the time we don't call it that way because we want to be professional. Well, I don't know how to be professional sometimes. I call it like it is. A lot of these young girls need to understand that these guys, if your boyfriend, fiance, your boo, whatever you want to call them, your side dude, whatever, telling you to transport some drugs or hold some guns, he do not love you, girl. He do not love you at all. Because someone that loves you is not going to put you in harm's way. You know, we dealing with a case like that in Philadelphia right now, where the dude get into an argument, he start arguing, he call his girl to come mm-hmm. to the argument. His girl end up getting shot in the head. Just last Monday, I know the family real good. 
she gets shot in the head, killed three kids, all boys, mm -hmm. five to 12. What do we think is going to happen with them kids now? I mean, do we, right. you know, if we don't have the proper intervention, them kids are going to grow up and probably be in, the, in your courtroom. Probably be in your courtroom. In the next maybe six, seven years for the smallest one. Right. So what I'm saying to the girls is, and to the young women, if your man is asking you to transport drugs, if your man is asking you to sell your body, if your man is asking you to hold his gun, if your man is asking you to go in these strip club and set somebody up, he do not love you. He is not the gangster that you think he is. He is a coward because a real man would not do that to the girl or the woman he claimed he loved. The honorable judge, right? Carrie Bloom cannot say that, but I'm saying it. This is my opinion. This is my <laughs> opinion, right? Because I live that life. Right. I live that life. I work in the. I work in one of the worst neighborhoods in Philadelphia, Kensington. I see it every day. But I love them. If you love them, how come you got a black eye? Right. Because you didn't. Well, but that's the thing is we have to teach them, you know, as, as part of the as they come into the system, which unfortunately is, you know, what we what I am part of is that's sort of our first. That's how we capture them. Right. Like and and we have to respond. The advocates and the, the prosecutors and the DAs and the judges, we have to respond in a different way than if they were boys. We have to look at that and we have to say, OK, I know in my rational brain that he doesn't love you. I know that. I can say that to you a hundred times, but it's just the same as me saying to, you know, some of the kids who come in here saying, you know, quit, just quit it with the gun, right? Like it, it's the same. It has, it, you know, I don't have any effect on them socially. Oh, and so I, I, what I wouldn't is say that, that Yana. I would not say that. You don't think? No, I wouldn't say that because, you know, there's a misconception out there with, judges and prosecutors and, and, and people in the system and the people that are caught up in the system, which is a lot of the time yeah. we think it's us against them. Right. Right. And it's really not. I know from experience because I work with the DA in Philadelphia. I do some work with him, mm -hmm. you know, from time to time. And I disagree with him a whole lot of times just to put that on the record. However, <laughs> <laughs> I understand the effect. I understand the okay. effect that a person with your power will have on people's lives if approached right. You know, what you're doing environing the community is a step that I think would take not only you, but whoever come in front of you in the right direction. Because a lot of judges mm -hmm. don't have the, the guts to say, you know what, I'm going to find a different way for you. I don't think you should mm -hmm. be thrown away yet. I'm going to find a different way. So you do have an effect. It's just a matter of how do we approach it? Sure. You know, and the approach. Sure. And finding, the approach yeah, finding those voices that, right, that, that a, a kid or especially girls, you know, we look at girls and we expect them to be older that they, than they are. Right. Right. They, they might mature faster or even they're just, that's the society. That's our problem is that we look at girls and think they're mm -hmm. older. And, and then we treat them as they're older and in, in the system as well. And, and what we don't realize is that, you know, they've had the same childhood as a lot of the boys that come through, right. 
but their reactions are different. Their reactions, you know, like you said, as a, you know, uh, looking for a father figure or looking for support and love. And so directing them to where they can find that and what appropriate support and love feels like. And, um, you know, reminding them of their value and reminding them um, of their futures and, and those sorts of things becomes the court's role. And I think there's a lot of pushback from um, some people in different courts and some, you know, some jurisdictions as, you know, we're not here, we're not here as, you know, the, the warm and feely type of thing, but these are kids and that's what they need and that's what they respond to. Um, you know, we were talking about their brains earlier. Girls' brains are different than boys. They grow a little faster you know, um, I, I, and they come together a little faster. I think I'm a little smarter than my twin sister, but that's that's for a different show. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that to me sounds a little feminism, Your Honor, but okay. <laughs> but but that's just that's that's just my sense of humor. I do say that I do say that uh, to me, it's a matter of saving lives, and I don't care how mm-hmm. we do it. I don't care what. Uh, alternative we use as long as we decrease the population of juveniles in prison i don't care what we do sometimes we're just gonna have to tell the juvenile you gotta do community service you gotta do a couple of hundreds community service you know and i'm an advocate for juveniles i believe that they deserve a chance but i also understand that sometimes it's going to take a uh and i probably cast some flat on this sometimes some somebody just gonna have to go to jail and that's just a fact. It's just a fact, you know, but the amount of time that they do is what matters to me, mm-hmm. you know, because we shouldn't put somebody in jail for stealing a piece of on, on, on a three strikes for 30 years or 40 years, especially a juvenile, you know. Right. And if we do put a juvenile in prison, I think the community should have it say so on the type of treatment that they receive because that same juvenile most likely will be returning to that same community. That's why mm-hmm. I always tell the community, don't prison walls are not only there to keep that person locked up, they're also there to keep the community locked out from knowing what's going on. Because a lot of times, mm. once we send juveniles into adult court, they get lost in the system and did not receive the proper treatment to rehabilitate, if that's what we want to call it, or transform. A lot of the time, the transformation that you see happening in prison happen because the person take an initiative on his own. I know it did for me. As a lifer, they told me I couldn't go to school. They told me I could mm-hmm. not sign up for a GED. They told me I couldn't do nothing. But I refused to obey by that rule and that law. And I went to school, I got my GED. I got my associate's degree, I got my bachelor's degree, and I was studying for a master's degree, right? And sometimes you're just going to have to take it on your own, people, and say, you know what? I want to change. I want to change, you know, because the judge that resentenced me, I got enough respect for her because she took a chance and said, enough is enough, time served with you. You know, and I think that if a person have that much trust in me, then I must, you know, have the integrity to honor that trust and say, you know what? I want other people to have the same trust on other juveniles mm-hmm. when they come in front of you. Yeah. You know, so I try to mm-hmm. do good. Am I perfect? Hell no. 
Would I ever be perfect? No. But can but can I transform and help my community? Yes. I'm doing that every day. You know, and I always, always tell the people, not every judge on the bench wanna hang you. Yeah. We do have some judges with integrity. We do have some prosecutors with integrity. You know, but at the same time, we gotta play our part. You know, mm-hmm. if we want people to have mercy on us, then we must be remorseful for some of the stuff that we get accused of or doing. Or doing. We must take, we must own it. And because when you own it, it's a start to begin a transformation. Yeah. Agreed. Definitely. So Definitely. I feel like we could go on for another hour, but we are at time. And sure. uh, <laughs> okay. I, I actually, I'm still in the middle of my work day, unfortunately. But oh. I, I would love to, uh, I mean, I think Swa- I can speak for Suave. I'd love to have you back on because there's a few other things that I'd like to chat about that kind of came up during this interview. And maybe you can think about it a little more okay. when we're when we're not on the phone. But um, one is definitely Absolutely. like... I want to talk a little bit more about your history and how you got into this uh, this work, and especially the advocacy part and being a public defender. So um, maybe for the next mm-hmm. for the next time, do you want to you want to? What do you think, Suave? I love, love carry back on, and I got a, I got a bunch yeah, more yeah. questions. So I mean, I, I wouldn't mind going to Ohio and talk to some of her kids in the in the courtroom. I love that. I wouldn't mind. The other thing, the other thing I wanted uh, to toss out there and uh, that I'd love to talk about sometime, if it if it's appropriate, is procedural justice. Yes. And how I think it's the best thing for kids, the most important thing we can do, period, for people, but for kids especially, because like you were saying, like some people have to go to jail, mm-hmm. um, but if it's after a really fair process and they, you know, were heard and they feel like it was fair then that's how we, you know, get, that's how we get buy-in, yes. buy-in from all the different people. So, and so- We gotta schedule another interview with you probably in the next next week, if it's possible. Uh, because yes, I think that it's important that people hear it. Cause sometimes we we tell people this and it's like, it's just Kevin and Suave talking. No people, we are talking to a real judge on a real bench that has the power to alter your life. So this is why mm-hmm. the people should listen. And it's not a judge that is trying to hang you, you know, because if you take the time to come talk to us, to our audience, that means that you care enough about the process in the juvenile court. So we thank you for that. And I got one question for you, one last question. What's that? From now on, what is your favorite podcast? <laughs> um, DBI. Yes. Right answer. Yes. <laughs> no, but, um, but seriously, I would like to work with you, uh, whether it's Zoom. I don't mind going to the, uh, Ohio and talk to the kids because when I tell people I've been in jail, even though I look like I'm 15, you know, I tell people I've been in jail 31 years. Very useful. I tell people I've been in jail 31 years. They'll be like, 31 years? I'm like, yes. And I had a life sentence, 10 to 20, five and a half to 10, one and a half to two. And I spent seven years in solitary confinement. It's almost like, mm-hmm. what? You know, and, and I always share that because I think that when you share your lived experience, with people going through that process, this is what could happen to you if you end up in that state prison. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I think we could get mm-hmm. the intention. So if invited, mm-hmm. if invited, I will go. Thank you so much for Offer saying made. that. Offer made, offer accepted. So- 
Thank you so much for listening. Please support us on Patreon at Death by Incarceration Podcast. Hit that follow button on all platforms. Share with a friend or 10. Follow us on social media at Death by Incarceration on Instagram, at DB Incarceration on Twitter, at DBI underscore podcast on TikTok. For all booking and media requests, please email Kevin at Death by Incarceration Podcast.com. Death by Incarceration is a production of DBI Media LLC. Produced and written by Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken. Editing by Jason Usry. Thanks to Crawlspace Media and Glassbox Media for being our partners. Please listen to our other shows, Injustice with Lisa Spees and Spencer Daniels, and watch for our upcoming special on the Camp Hill Riot of 1989. Special thanks to Checker for all their support of the show and to Kevin and Suave individually. We really appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone. And please, if you can, take action. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.